1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Knicks Film School pregame show. My name is Andrew Claudio, a.k.a. GMAC. With the Knicks, whoever's available, taking on the Indiana Pacers on Saturday night at MSG. Uh, We welcome in a friend of the pod, a a longtime favorite of Knicks Film School. Uh, From basketball, she wrote, which merch available, you should go get it now. Uh, Miss Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing this morning?
2: I'm tired. How are you feeling after the trade deadline?
1: I, long day. Definitely a long day on Thursday. So Caitlin, I wear many hats here at Knicks Film School. And one of them obviously being our pregame show host. And I take a lot of pride in that. But the thing I take even more pride in is the executive producer of all content here at Knicks Film School. And something I've always wanted to do because I hope I can give you this compliment. You're one of my favorite people. I like to listen to talk about the X's and O's of basketball. Well, Right up there with you is my good friend, Benji Ritholtz. And I've always wanted to hear the both of you talk about the game, even if it's just like about both of our teams, the Knicks and the Pacers or just basketball in general. So I decided for a very special edition of the pregame pod, I would bring on my good friend, Benji Ritholtz, and we would switch places for
3: one day. Benji, how are you today, my friend? Hello. This was very dramatic. I enjoyed that. A little pop in late in the pod. How are you? How's everybody doing? Caitlin, it's a pleasure to be here. How are you doing? I appreciated the special effects. (laughs) Right? I'm now
2: more awake than I was five (laughs) seconds ago just from that. I
1: I think I just got a a notification from Mr. Christopher Nolan. He's going to be bringing me on for his next project for both direction and visual effects consulting. So, in the spirit of me going full producer mode, I'm going to go behind the scenes and give the floor over to Benji. The show is yours,
3: guys. All right. Well, I guess Andrew already introed. But it's truly, truly an honor and a pleasure to be here with you, Caitlin. I will tell you that I try to be humble. I think I consider myself in the know of basketball on basketball Twitter. I, I There are there are a few accounts that I consistently turn to to learn something, including different ways. It's, it's the creativity with which you look at the game. It's like the different voice you provide. So... I want to tell you that, so and that's why it's a, very much an honor for me to be on with you because you teach me. So thank you for being here, and, and, and I'm really looking forward to, to diving in. So let's do it. I don't know if you had a chance to like publicly speak about the tr- I assume you have with your, on your Patreon, et cetera, about the trade that happened, but maybe this is one of your first opportunities to kind of break down what the Pacers have done. And I'm fascinated to hear your perspective on this because I know from your account that you are a buddy healed defender even though I think he gets, he's one of the guys, you know, there's always someone in every fan base that gets ripped on undeservedly to me as, as a fan who has, my team has competed against the Pacers. I will tell you, I'm terrified of buddy Hield. when I watched this offense, the Indiana offense and how obviously the speed with which they play, but the, the tremendous amount of options they have on any play and, and, what Buddy Healed meant to those options, the danger with which the danger that he constantly is on the floor on any play, especially in transition where you have to find him. And that opens up so much for the Pacers when they're moving so quickly. And I know you've defended him and they've replaced him to some extent with Doug McDermott, Doug McDermott, right? So I, I, there, there's still some movement shooting on the roster, but I don't think that's quite the level of Buddy who, is one of the best of the last decade um by any metric. So wh- like looking at this, what does this mean to like this explosive Pacers offense, this, this, this swap and like, where do you see it going from here?
2: Yeah, but I think mainly a lot of it had to do with the fact that they were pretty far apart in extension negotiation talks. And if you think that he's going to walk in the summer, they didn't want him to walk and they get nothing in return. So obviously they recruit some draft capital. And as you said, I agree with you. Um, I have a lot of experience with Doug McDermott. You have experience with Doug McDermott as well because he also played for the Knicks. And Rick Carlisle also has experience with Doug McDermott. And I think all that's fairly helpful. Some of the teammates carry over as far as TJ McConnell and Miles Turner goes. But just to Buddy Heald and speaking to him, You know, there is a relationship existing between Tyrese and Buddy where last year for a good portion of the year, they were close to the top of the league in the assist rate, which of course assists are dependent on someone making a shot. That's always helpful. And and Buddy Hill did set the single season franchise record for made threes last year and the shooting was down this year but i like what you brought up because i think that that's what i always have to try to counter with when people bring up the fact that buddy's shooting has been down and especially over these last several games where he was in a bit of a slump is that even when he isn't doing something he's still doing something because he commands so much gravity with everything that he does like if knicks fans watched the most recent game between the two teams they saw some of the good and some of the bad of buddy but you know it's a basic stack screen action buddy setting the stack screen Miles is the ball screener and Tyrese is so good at rejecting ball screens that he goes away from it. And a lot of times they don't even have to run the ball screen. It just becomes a rip for Miles to go to the rim. That leaves one defender to guard two and both Nick defenders went to buddy and that just left Miles wide open under the rim. So a lot of times you're focused on, you know, Tyrese's eye manipulation and what he's doing in that action or, you know, that it is a jump pass. I like jump passes or how Miles is finishing it. And you're not seeing exactly how that guy got open. So a lot of times that is because of buddy. And what he can do in those types of sets and also just how important he is as a ghost screener for tyrese as well where you can see that like in the in-season tournament he had al horford on an island and al horford actually went with buddy healed and released from tyrese that takes a lot nobody else on this roster is going to go set a ghost screen for tyrese and like Giannis is going to go with them and not only just go with them but slide down below the break of the three-point line and follow buddy despite the fact that he has shot the ball a little bit worse. So it's those types of advantages that I think that Buddy brings to the offense in addition to just, you know, what his overall know-how is. But obviously, the fourth quarter against the Knicks also showed some of the downsides. So which, that yeah,
3: yeah. Although, although he wasn't exactly helped out by his coaching staff or the scheme in terms of being left there on Brunson and Island. You mentioned two of the actions that I, that I was thinking of, and that's the stack action, which for those listening who don't know, is when a sh- usually a shooter will come set a back screen on the on the on the screeners man. So it's kind of a three person involved action. is often kind of melts from that wing straight into that stack spot. And God, I find that really a terrifying action to defend. And the other one is the ghost screening, which you know it's almost it's not necessarily a set. It's almost like they they they'll. Like Tyrese will call that or honestly, Buddy will do it on himself kind of constantly on any like a play breaks down. The first action doesn't work. Well, here comes Buddy just setting a either a screen or usually a ghost screen, which, again, for those who don't know, you're not really setting the screen. You're kind of just like positioning yourself there and then slipping out, usually fading onto the opposite wing. And for the Knicks, especially because like they're often hiding Jalen Brunson there. They're not going to switch Brunson onto Tyrese. So. The difficulty to navigate that like and and we'll get into this for tomorrow's matchup like the Knicks won that game the last matchup just a whatever a week ago. I don't think the Knicks have have progressed at all in terms of guarding these types of actions. I think when Tyrese has been in the game with the pace and the pick and roll attack and like the constant actions, I think the Knicks have really struggled to navigate it. I don't think they win that game if Tyrese frankly plays a full minute load Um, because I just had the pick and roll defense hasn't looked good. and. I don't know, like Doug McDermott does a lot of really nice things. He also moves well without the ball, but, like I don't see that kind of that kind of threat in those types of actions. and he's not going to get the minute load, frankly. I don't think that buddy gets right. So it's even just in like a, in terms of the amount of time. Um, I don't know if you've any thoughts on that as well.
2: yeah, I mean, I think it's somewhat twofold because when they acquired Pascal, they had already moved Aaron D Smith to the three for reasons that had made sense, but then. Aaron, in that game, he was defending Jalen Brunson, and he fouled out. And in the next game, he fouled out again, and he was defending mainly at the point of attack. So they insert Andrew Nemhard back into the starting lineup, which makes sense because he can be a secondary initiator next to Tyrese, and he's the better point of attack defender. He's of the Pacers' options. He's the best at staying skinny through a screen. But when you do that, you obviously do lose some of what Buddy's doing offensively. So, I mean, it was curious at the end of that game because Tyrese is on the minutes restriction and it stood out because the two of them were separated in that way that Buddy's out there being defended by Jalen Brunson and he's not screening for the ball. Like he wasn't the one being involved. Like it was Pascal screening for Andrew Nemhard, which was just putting Precious Achua onto Nemhard. And Precious is probably the switchiest defender that the Knicks have, I would guess, at least at the big position. So, and then... What was even more curious about it is they literally in the third quarter because i remember i tweeted this and i was like oh an inverted an inverted buddy screen for siakam like be still my heart it's finally <laughs> happened <laughs> and like i don't understand why that wasn't like a feature down the stretch in the fourth quarter because buddy had jalen brunson guarding him like just go set the flat step up screen for siakam and let him go at that matchup. and instead it was like going head-on against precious multiple times down the stretch in the fourth quarter in addition to leaving Buddy on the island at the other end. So, like, if you were going to leave Buddy in, like, at least, like, put him to work here a little bit. Yeah, but, yeah.
3: yeah. I mean, you, you watched every every defense try to guard this Indiana team. Um, the Knicks, I think, are in some ways, because they're not schematically diverse and also because their personnel with Brunson and then usually, a, a, you know, a center who's not as switchable or at least won't switch based on the scheme. Julius Randle, who's out there, who maybe could switch on Tyrese, but like the coach is, is hesitant. Do you think that generally speaking, the ability to switch liberally on Tyrese actions is the only way to slow this offense down? Like can, can you play a tr- more traditional scheme without trapping and without switching and have any real shot? Cause that's with the, with the Knicks defense right now, when I'm watching, I I'm doubting that at least in terms of what the Knicks have to offer. But i don't know if you have any thoughts
2: yeah that's interesting because over like roughly the first 26 games when tyrese got traded to the pacers i would have told you that switching a big on him was was the best bet like obviously if you have somebody like evan mobley like even like isaiah stewart in detroit stole the offense out to a degree where they ended up tilting more of it to malcolm brogdon when malcolm brogdon was still on the roster because tyrese at the time just wasn't he's not somebody who's really going to spin his tires and he's not necessarily going to be to switch off the dribble he typically does it with his shot and creating separation with the side step to the right now he's found some hacks to it where it isn't quite as effective because he can sidestep to the left a little bit more he's more willing to do that if you shade him that way at least pulling up from three and then in addition he has one of my favorite tricks where because the side step to the right and the step back is such much of a threat that he'll he'll fake it get that big to draw closer to him and then he'll pass out of it and cut right in front of that big for a give and go and then he's put the defense automatically in rotation with the big behind him away from the rim. So like he's found little things like that, where I don't think just flat out switching the big right onto him is as effective. But like you said, like Doug McDermott, by comparison to Buddy, he doesn't set that many ball screens. Like I looked at the numbers for San Antonio and even the last time he played for the Pacers and like, it's like, it was like 2.5 ball screens per 100 possessions compared to 12 for Buddy per game. So that isn't a super big factor of the way that he's been used in offenses. He's far more somebody who's like flying off of staggers yeah, being floppies, used off scrappers kind of or yeah. or like DHO two man actions was really good with him, you know, Kylo Quinn. Yeah, it is, yes. Bonus, yes. Those types of connections. But you know, Buddy does that. Buddy good, does a lot nostalgia. more. Buddy does a lot more as like a stag screener and as as a ball screener for Tyrese. So that option we'll see how it goes. But as far as like traditional coverage. A game last year against the Knicks when Quentin Grimes, who no longer plays for the New York Uh, Knicks, was available. And Mitchell Robinson was there and they played him in drop. Like, Quentin was one of the few people that I've seen who's been able to, if Tyrese rejected a screen, he still beat him to the spot. Two or three times in that matchup. And that's really why I think that Tyrese started going at Randall late in the Wally Zerbiak game. Because (laughs) that coverage was good enough that he was like, hey, we got to get somebody else involved. So then it ended up being Julius out on a switch. But... Other than that, the best traditional coverage that I've seen, which obviously Boston mixes up and does a lot of different stuff in a game, is that Derek White weaked him. Like Boston will weak him from the start of a game and force him to go left, and that kind of reoriented what the Pacers want to do offensively. So typically they set most of the screens for him to attack downhill going to his right, but the second time they played Boston, they're like, hey, we're going to set these for him to go to his left so at least he can still access the screen. And while he can stop and pop going to his left, because he is pretty floater dependent, when you weak him, you're still getting that dominant hand contest when he goes up into his floater. So it affects him a little bit more. Like if you can weak the screen, even if your bigs and drop, you'll be more effective than if you're just playing like traditional rear view pursuit chase over the top.
3: That'll be interesting. That'll be interesting to watch if the Knicks try to get to that at all. I was saying, you know, it's funny. It's almost the inverse of Luca, who they played last night, who only exclusively shoots off the dribble to his left. And I was saying, and he he hit like six of them last night or something, step back threes to his left. And I was saying, I think at some point you probably got, even though it seems counterintuitive, you got to get him going right and like live with the concept. Obviously, he can get downhill. He can make plays going right. But like he's killing you with this. There's no way to contest it. I don't know, try to, try to force him into the lane and, and make and, and, and figure it out from there. Tyrese is, is a unique player. At most righties feel more comfortable going to their left. He's unique in that he has this strange form that allows him to be so effective shooting to his right. When the Knicks generally try to kind of for, for, force guys left, Dante DiVincenzo is kind of a, a victim of this. He'll like jump really early and basically just like roll out the red carpet into the lane. And so I, I worry a little bit if the Knicks go to that strategy, but it'll be interesting to monitor.
2: And that's too, because like, you know, if somebody were to go, which think is different than ice, but when they yeah. do like Tyrese is already like going to try to reject the screen to he, begin with. So if you open your hips too early, that's just going to play into what he wants. Yeah. DiVincenzo
3: got burned with rejects a few times in that game. Um, and if you let Tyrese reject, it's, it's basically over. Um, you mentioned Siakam and you know that this is a, again, when I'm viewing the game and like on, from a Knicks perspective, It's almost it's jarring to watch Siakam isolate because this is the Pacers' offense was so snappy, right? Action to action to action, screen to screen to screen. If something breaks down, send Buddy Heel to screen. Like it's it never stops. And all of a sudden you have this guy who does slow that down and interrupt it. Now, maybe in a healthy way, and maybe they need some of that punch. But I'm curious if you felt that like the stalling of the offense at times when someone who's more ball dominant, more ISO heavy enters the fold and how that's affected the flow in the offense in general.
2: Yeah, I mean, for the first two seasons of Tyrese being here, if you count the 26 that he played after the trade deadline, like to listen to the coaching staff, they're always like, get to the next action. And the main way that they do that is like what we said. It's usually like a buddy or somebody setting a blur screen or what I would refer to as a reignition screen to get them to the other side of the floor and to get into whatever's next. Or sometimes it's like motioning for a big to come get the ball at the elbow and then they'll go into split or something like that. But in part, it's like which begets which. It's kind of sometimes like when you talk about Julius Randle in the playoffs, is the ball stopping because he's isolating or did the action around him stop so he isolated? It's kind of the chicken or the egg type of a question. So, are the Pacers not isolating because they don't have isolation options? You know, like that's part of it, I think. And uh, like there's times where you could look at it where Tyrese is getting blitzed more, he's being face guarded, or like, you know, there's a game against Boston where I have a, a screenshot of it on Twitter where Drew Holiday's literally standing on the logo with Tyrese <laughs> and it looks like a box and one. Yeah. like legit it looks like a box of one if you just look at it and it was not they were just that comfortable playing four on four and being like as long as we take you out of this it's fine and like when you have siakam out there like i compare him to like he has very staccato movements very languid finishes whereas the pacers are far more lyrical and flow based and he distinguish he fits in by distinguishing himself i think because like they weren't running a lot of plays for him like you could tell early on in the game that they played against phoenix i clipped it for a video that I made on Patreon that like they were running a sideline out of bounds play. And Andrew Nemhard was having to tell him where to go because he didn't know. And he still had 31 points in that game. Like just because organically, like but probably the top thing they like to do for him is like, they call it C it's just like a corner screen, somebody coming up out of the corner, setting a touch screen. And then if they don't get anything there, they'll reverse it to the big for delay and to like, a pin down into a handoff for chicago like that's basically that's a play that they run a lot of times every game and now because Siakam's a lot of times the person setting the touchscreen, if he gets a switch it's just an automatic post up right into that or if he's the ball handler it's just a bully drive similar to what jalen brunson would do if he's bringing up the ball and he wants to go into a bully drive and tunnel to a spot so i don't think it's too disruptive it's not like they're running a bunch of like static post-up plays like it's very different I just recently wrote an article comparing this because like when Sabonis was here for like the first 17 games of Rick Carlisle's tenure, his role was very whack. It didn't really make very much sense to be quite <laughs> honest. Like they there was clearly a war between Sabonis wanting to play out of triangle concepts and Rick Carlisle not wanting to play out of triangle concepts and they would let him post, but you would have to dribble into the post up and he's not very good like dribbling with his back to the basket this way. He's far better at side to side actions and DHOs and And there was some of that, but like he was spending a lot of times in the corner. It didn't make a lot of sense. And now you can tell that Rick's more amenable to the way in which Siakam gets to his post ups or gets into some of those isolations where it still fits into the set, but then might look somewhat separatist because they're not necessarily getting to the next thing. But I think that it's been there. It's just the fact that like Tyrese hasn't really fully been there yet. Like he's, he's been injured with the hamstring and then he's been on a minutes restriction. And then last night, like not on a minutes restriction, but takes a total of like six shots in a game so yeah
1: What's up, Knicks fans? Quick break to tell you about our new sponsor, Prize Picks. Not only are they the largest daily fantasy sports platform in North America, but they're also the easiest and most exciting way to play. Instead of battling thousands of other players, including pros and sharks, it's just you against the numbers, picking more than or less than on a 2-6 to six player stat projection. With the NBA season more than midway through and the NFL season with just three games left, now is as good a time as any to pick combo projections across sports from the Specials League. For example, on any given night, take Jalen Brunson over in points, Julius Randle over in rebounds, or O.G. Ananobi over in steals. Then combine it with two NFL props, like Patrick Mahomes over in passing yards, or Christian McCaffrey over in touchdowns. Prize Picks is a really simple way to play. PrizePix offers weekly promotions that can lead to big payouts. Like on Taco Tuesday each Tuesday, PrizePix discounts select player projections up to 25% to provide even more value. PrizePix now offers Apple Pay for quick and easy deposits into your account all basketball season. You know what to do. Go to prizepicks.com slash KFS and use code KFS for a first deposit match up to $100. Again, that's prizepicks.com slash KFS and use code KFS for a first deposit match up to $100. PrizePix. It's daily fantasy
3: sports made easy. In terms of their two-man action... Um but I've gotten to watch, you know, it's, it depends on the on the defending personnel. But because Siakam's is a four for the most part, anyway, I know they've played him at the five or had him with other fours um, occasionally. You get a little bit into the issue of if there's a wing on Siakam, it's just a very switchable action. So how have the Pacers, if at all kind of I know, again, I know the minutes have been limited with both of them. But how are the Pacers trying to navigate that issue, if at all? Uh, and how do you see that going in terms of trying to open up that two-man action? You want your two best players involved in as many actions as you can. How, how do you navigate that issue?
2: Sometimes like, it will be in transition where like a pet play that Nick Nurse has used for Siakam and that the Pacers have run in the past under Nate Bjorken, and now they're bringing back for Siakam now is just like a quick a quick flip or a quick pitch and transition. Hmm. Where if Tyrese is bringing it up, then it's not fully a ball screen. He's just tossing it behind him and then you're getting the defense moving one way and you get more of a head of steam into that so that if they were to switch it, it's with you already having motion headed downhill to get to his strong hand. So that's one way. Then another thing is he, like several teams are cross-matching it because this is the other thing about Miles is that Miles very rarely gets defended by fives. So right. sometimes you're seeing more of like, oh, Perzingis is getting put on Siakam and Beads getting put on Siakam or whoever it is. And like that actually has to excuse bad. me. I'm
3: just very used to traditional matchups because that's just how we play. So right. like Hardenstein yeah, like, will be guarding Miles Turner. I can guarantee it if he's playing anyway.
2: Yeah. So like the one thing about Siakam that they haven't really had from anybody when they've been cross matched like that is that he can keep a live dribble in the middle of the floor so like you know they tried to do this when jalen smith was starting next to miles like brooke lopez got put on jalen and jalen kind of gets stuck in mud he's not as shifty he's not as explosive whereas siakam can be like oh i'm gonna snatch back against joel Embiid, and then i'm still gonna get around the edge of the defense with my left and by the second half and like okay i don't i don't want any more of that <laughs> like i'd rather just sag off and let miles shoot right, or like right. and then siakam was like oh if you're gonna sag off and let miles shoot then i'm just gonna drive right at you draw that help and kick it out to miles and if it's a good shooting night for miles then. And that's fairly effective, but and he's had some of those against the Knicks. He did have one where Dom Thibodeau, Dom Thibodeau, tried that that tact, and he ended up having a seven three pointer game or whatever it I remember was. Remember it but, well, yes. But yeah, so there there are a lot of crazy uh, lineup combinations. Like I mean, Boston even got to one where they had gone so small that Drew Holiday was defending Miles at the five as a five, and he was setting screens. So
3: strange stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's funny. I, you know, assessing you look at the Pacers numbers, and it, it's. It it looks like I mean, the, the percentages, the shooting percentages of the role players are outrageous. I mean, they're really outrageous. And like it has to be attributed, like all these guys having 40, not just 40, 45 percent three point shooting seasons. It can't just be like we, we picked out these right. You know, like they're all having career years. These are all these aren't rookies. These are guys that have a track record of shooting the basketball. You have to attribute it to some extent to the system and like the shots they're getting, obviously. From a. And this will touch on Obi a little bit, who I know we kind of haven't discussed, because frankly, he's he's been marginalized a bit, obviously, based on the personnel moves. How do you assess the performances here from guys like Jalen Smith, Obi Toppin, even E Smith, who's shooting one of the best, best percentages in the league? How do you assess the, the 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 performances understanding that there's some degree of like inflation, stat inflation? unless you don't feel that way, but I'm looking at the numbers and I'm, I'm blown away by these percentages. How do you assess that? And how do you, from a, from kind of a future fit perspective, how do you, how do you look at that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think you have to look at it guy by guy and see like, you know, what has changed necessarily for them and their roles. So like last year, Jalen started the year starting at the four. And like I said, there was a lot of cross matches going on, but he had to be a higher volume shooter. And then to start this year, he was he was taking threes, but mainly on lower volume at the five spot. So a lot of times those are like free points. Like what's happening at the five spot is a lot different now than what was even happening. Like I like to bring up this comparison a lot, but like when the Pacers played in 2013-14 against the Atlanta Hawks and Perro Antic basically wrecked them despite the fact that, you know, he wasn't like, he wasn't shooting upwards of 40%, but Roy Hibbert was still chasing him out there. And then that was opening driving lanes. Like now it's kind of the reverse where it's a reality of like, We have to give up something and that's what we're going to be willing to give up but if a big can make a three then tremendous because it's an open shot like that's kind of more of the reality that jalen was existing in up until here recently when he went back to the four and then when the volume went back up i think he was shooting like 28 percent over those games so then in aaron's case like aaron actually did spend time this summer being like i'm anticipating that i'm going to be playing the three So I've worked more to be able to play above the break and you've seen him be able to slide up and down the arc a little bit more. He gets used as a screener, some as a ghost screener where he's stepping out and being able to hit those shots. And I do think that they've worked with him a little bit on like not requiring as much of a hop as he maybe needed in Boston to get like the kinetic chain up through a little bit smoother than what it would have been before. And then in Obi's case, like I'd love to know what your perspective on that is, because I, I I did not watch every three-pointer that he attempted with the New York Knicks, but I feel like he's doing a little bit more off of movement. Like I about lost my mind in that game against the Knicks when he got one as a trailer and took a dribble into a pull up three.
3: Dude. I- <sighs> Yeah, that first half, I was like, "This is gonna be bad" because he had a great first half. Not on both ends, on both ends. Blocked blocked a couple shots. Like looks super. And then mm-hmm. second half, you saw a little bit more of like some of the OB issues uh, in terms yeah, of like it
2: coincided with the Deuce McBride like personal eleven and zero run. Yeah,
3: yeah, and like <laughs> OB just like some decision making offensively, and then like rebounding and the stuff that that pops up here and there. But yeah, he was. Yeah, he the you know. With Obi, it, it doesn't feel like much more analysis than uh, rhythm and touches. Like I, I do believe in that, and like the usage in New York was so ridiculous that he—I mean, he literally just stood in the corner. Like there, w- he did nothing else but stand in the corner for twelve minutes a game. And I think it's really hard to make a lot of shots like that. I just do. I think they especially a player like him who didn't has never done that before. Like. At any point in his life has has he been like a corner guy? He's not this is a Danny Green, right? Like this is a guy who spent his whole career screening, rolling, and like in Indiana, just like it's not even that I don't even think his usage is up though, like just like the usage percentage. I think it's actually down in Indiana, which is fascinating. but obviously, like the touches and the movement, and the offense is just so much more complex, and I think it allows him to just feel more in rhythm. I, I don't know if there's anything more than that based on what I've watched.
2: I think that's the thing that's kind of surprised me the most about him is I knew he was very active and, and fairly intuitive as a screener a lot of the time, but I didn't know that he was quite this good at continuing an advantage and being yeah. able to, like, catch the ball on the corner, put it down a couple times, and be able to find the opposite wing or find the opposite corner and make a pretty quick passing decision and secondary-type yeah. situation. So
1: A good that's jump shy. passer,
3: by the way. A pretty good jump passer on his own not right. Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, yeah, no, and this is – I mean, look, for – three, four years, this is what we were begging for is like, can we get this guy like moving a little bit? Like he, he can make some plays like he does things, but alas, it's, I mean, the the contrast in the two teams is so fast. I think it's such a fascinating matchup because obviously the pace is on two sides of the spectrum spectrum, like the Knicks crawl, crawl it up and down. Pacers are, are on in hyperspeed the way that so many Knicks possessions, basically like it's one or two actions and then, okay, nothing happened. Jalen, here's the ball. Julius, here's the ball. Go. I mean, sometimes they'll call up a screen, but it's it doesn't need to be. Like it, it's it's basically create your own advantage and both guys thankfully are very good at it and it's an effective offense despite being so different whereas the Pacers it's like again, with Siakam kind of now contrasting a little bit, but it's like there's never not an action going on. Uh, it's just like a really fascinating matchup for that reason and had the games have, have I think lived up to that. Like it's just a really fun clash of styles. Um I, when when they were playing last week and Brunson just like driving over and over and over again I mean and, and since since um, Randall went down the drives have been like a 25 a game which is even more than Shea Gilders Alexander like we're at like he he's driving the ball more than anyone in the league you, you use the word relentless on your account which is a word that I use a lot as well what do you think the Pacers do if anything and, and the buddy mismatch won't be available to the Knicks but and assuming Jalen plays which I hope he does Um, but even looking into the future matchups, like what would you do defensively with the Pacers personnel to at least try to slow this guy down? Is it an outright trap? I mean, the Knicks obviously just added a bunch of shooting. So it makes, makes the calculus a little bit harder. Um, what do you think in terms of defensive strategy?
2: Will you allow me a little bit of time here to play to my audience and just gush about what that performance was? Please do. Like, first of all, like I have this saying that I like to use a lot that, the quickest and easiest scouting report on a player is to watch them play against their old team. And obviously the Pacers are not Jalen Brunson's old team, but that's his old coaching staff. So in terms of knowing like the quirks and ticks of his game, you would think that they would know them as well as anybody. And when these two teams played a year ago around this time, they were very active in trying to funnel him into both corners, which I found to be curious because they were like icing him and trying to force him into the corner, even on the left side of the floor. But they were really doing it demonstrably on the right side. And, and Jalen did pretty well to escape out of that. And by the second half, they did exactly what you said. And they went very aggressive trapping him. And that did kind of work the game back into their favor a little bit, because as good as Jalen is. Size is size, and it is a little bit harder for him to pass out of the top of a trap at, than it is yeah. for Tyrese Halliburton. In order they have to, be they able have to, to do short that. the
3: trap a lot and find an outlet for him, which takes a little bit more time. And yeah.
2: So, like, I know Pacer fans aren't going to want to hear this, but Buddy Heald was not the only player that was hunted in this most recent game. Obi Toppin got called into action mm-hmm. multiple times where they were automatically putting somebody at the nail the second that switch occurred. Tyrese Halliburton got targeted a number of times where they were just giving up left to the baseline. On several occasions, like Andrew Nembauer had a couple of good possessions where he turned the water off. But even then, like, he was getting a little bit hoppy on some of the pump fakes and and the fouls yes. that were being drawn. But, like, the one possession just absolutely blew my mind because they three-quarter court. They attempted a three-quarter court trap Jalen. He dribbled around it, advanced it up to Hartenstein, and then was going to get, like, a get action. Aaron denied it. He goes around in a loop trying to get out, of, like, gut Chicago to get it at the top of the key. Aaron denied that. Then he does a comeback and Aaron squared that up and Tyrese was at the nail trying to take away his dominant left hand and Jalen plays off of two feet. And despite the fact that he's like undersized for his position creates like somehow creates a ton of of separation going to his right and makes a banker. Like that's basically just one person using the rest of his team as like a jungle gym to just completely (laughs) dominate somebody one on five. Like it was completely absurd at that point. But to answer your question, like I did after that game, I wanted to make a video because I was very curious to find out because the Knicks dominated them on the glass too. Like they gave up 24 offensive rebounds. The Pacers did. That's ridiculous and quite poor. So I wanted to know, like, did the rebounding get worse when they were trapping Mm Jalen? So I went and looked at like how many times they had doubled on bully drives or they had attempted to, you know, show or hedge on a pick and roll. Or if it was just an out and out, like we went switch to blitz and forced the ball out of his hand. So there were 16 of those possessions. The Knicks scored like outright just made a field goal on five. So out of the remaining 11, they got out offensive rebounds on five. So that's a pretty good offensive rebounding rate out of the blitzes, which kind of speaks to, you know, what the gravitational waves can be and how that can kind of lead to like in the fourth quarter when Jalen Brunson was on the floor, their offensive rebounding rate was over 70% because they had 10 offensive rebounds just in that quarter. So. You know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Like, they don't really have anybody that's going to be able to hang with Jalen in single coverage, but then if they double him, they're already not a good rebounding team themselves and they're going up against the best offensive rebounding team in the NBA. So, you know, what do they do? And I think that that might have been why they were like, okay, let's leave Buddy in space because we've tried to do this a few times and we've either given up a three or like the one time they got the ball out of Jalen's hands and then Aaron kind of lost his place on the trapping and then Jalen got it back and made a three. So... If it were me, if it were me, I think that they they probably need to be. Maybe you can play it by ear, but if he starts in the way that he did in that game, I think that you just have to be willing to to hard trap him and live with the consequences of it.
3: Yeah, I mean through this, especially post Randall, I think one thing that people are really starting to appreciate is 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 his. I mean, it's relentless, but it's it's his stamina. I mean, the guy on an offensive, like you mentioned, I mean, he gets denied. First of all, he brings up the ball. And he often gets three quarter, you know, full court press, which to me, I'm like, hey, guys, like can Dante dribble up the court and can we get Jalen like coming off a Chicago or something to start? Like, do we have to do this thing where he has to get pressured for three quarters so that we're starting the possession with 16? He's got to give it up and find a way to get it back. Now we're down to nine. Now he makes it happen anyway, most of the time. So like, but like I would like them to maybe vary their the way they initiate sets a little bit once in a while. Um, But it's a, it's, inc- I mean, he finds the ball after 10 seconds of running around, and then he's got somehow the energy to get into the lane. Sometimes he gets shut down on the first drive. Now he's driving again at you. Now he's in the paint. Now he's spinning, twirling, turning, pump faking. As you mentioned, like, it's not just the pivots and the footwork, it's how much separation he creates with those pivots and footwork. It's actually incredible for a guy his size. It's unbelievable. What he's done is just, it, I, I mean, I, I, I sing his praises all the time, so it's different to hear it from you. But I sing his praises all the time. But the guy is uh, is really unique, Um, and it's interesting to hear you talk about the offensive rebounding. I think that's kind of undersold in terms of like a a trap beating mechanism. Like you lose when the defense kind of moves up the floor, and now you're left with Isaiah Hartenstein leaning on sometimes not even your center. Right? It's just like an almost automatic for the Knicks to get that offensive rebound, and how much that. That can be a weapon for the Knicks, um, but that's 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 really fascinating. Julius Randall, I'm curious to hear your your perspective on this. Uh, you know, we spoke a little bit about how Siakam can be like a bit of a, a a change of pace in terms of for for the Pacers, like more of a more of a static player. Julius is maybe one of the most static players in the league. Like once he gets it, it takes a long time for him to move it. Now he draws a lot of attention, and after five six seconds of dribbling, pounding the ball in. Once that help comes, if it does come, he's really good at finding an outlet, right? And 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 he's done good work against the Pacers. I remember back in the, the Julius Sabonis days, those guys were just like, they were two titans just like banging on each Gladiator. other. <laughs> <laughs> like they both had like scratches on those. Those matchups were unbelievable. Um, like for two like fairly mediocre teams at the time, like it was kind of fun to watch those games. Um, can, is... Do you do you think the Knicks have a higher ceiling at some point, replacing that with something more organic that fits next to Brunson? And this is kind of a big picture that thing that a lot of Knicks fans think about a lot. Like where, what is Julius's place on this roster now? You've the roster starting to make a whole lot of sense, especially with these moves. You have OG now as the as the all do it all defensive wing who can shoot space around Brunson. That makes a ton of sense. You brought in a more shooting Burks, Bogdanovich. You obviously have the diving centers, the rim protection. Julius is kind of this like curveball in there. Like, where does he fit? And is the long-term vision of the roster someone that maybe more of a a 3-4, right? Slotting in there is more of a a standstill shooter. Curious to hear your thoughts on Julius. Is there something he has to do or can do to be a better fit? Do you think the second creation that he he provides is necessary for this roster? Um, Just kind of a big picture question. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on.
2: You know it's interesting something that I haven't really thought a lot about with isolations versus you know some of what the Pacers do and Tyrese is such an anomaly and to a certain degree the Pacers were especially early because it was I would like marvel at the fact that they could be playing at the speed that they were while also not being loose with the ball while amazing. playing at that great next amazing. The fact that he doesn't turn it over a lot doesn't really make sense. Like people will ask me, how are the Pacers not turning the ball over? And I'm like, I don't know. Cause it's not like, it's not like Tyrese doesn't make adventurous passes. <laughs> he makes a lot of adventurous passes. Yeah, yeah. And he can still go, you know, two or three games without having a turnover. But that being said, that's again, that's an anomaly. So when you watch like the Knicks offense. They're going to win the possession war most games because not only are they going to beat you on the offensive glass, but because they're not passing the ball as much and because the ball is sticking somewhat with Jalen and Julius, they don't turn it over as much. So they're getting more shot attempts than other teams. And like, I do think, I feel like some, at least to a degree since the OG trade has happened and before OG got hurt, obviously. That there was some more motion going on. Like, I haven't looked at the numbers to see, but it felt like there was more secondary stuff happening around Julius than what I at least remember, especially in the second series against Miami. I I think the
3: swap, the RJ for OG starting lineup swap naturally provided a bit more motion and movement just because RJ was that kind of awkward third ball dominant handler in the lineup. That didn't fully make it. Never fully made sense. The numbers never supported the fact that it made sense, right? So you you made that swap for someone who's at least more of a,
2: and also it helped that you made the swap for Dante DiVincenzo becoming the greatest shooter of all time. Yes,
3: the best. Yes, (laughs) great swap. He became the best shooter of all time. Excellent swap there. Yeah.
2: But I guess my question to you would be like, how comfortable do you feel like now that there is so much shooting? How many of those guys do you feel really good rising up above and firing out of a DHO? Like if that became you know, even more a central feature of what Randall did.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think Bogdanovich for sure. Um, I think he's a pretty he's a pretty, you know, he's a pretty versatile, diverse shooter from both corners, above the break, catch and shoot, pull up. Um, I think he's been one of the best shooters. Like and you have oh, you know, I should ask you about Bogdanovich, because you have some experience with him. Like, is that something he did in Indiana? Because I feel I mean, I've watching the tape, he does some of it. I mean, he's definitely a movement shooter kind of maybe a loose loose definition, but he is a movement shooter. He's a pull-up shooter. Um, I think he adds a lot in that sense. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, he did some of that with Sabonis. His role changed a lot over that little time span that he was here because Victor Oladipo went down and he took on a lot of his usage and was still able to maintain some of the efficiency there. Like, I don't really want Boyan Bogdanovich necessarily, like... When Nate McMillan was trying to play hero ball without a hero, I wasn't thrilled with no, it. No,
3: no, no, no.
2: <laughs> but when, we when have you can we do, have other
3: heroes, we're good there. Yeah. <laughs> you
2: can do other two man stuff with Bogey. Like, you know, Bogey game three against the Cleveland Cavaliers, give me more of that when you know Victor's getting trapped and Bogey can make shots from deep range. That's quite helpful. But I think I am in favor of handoff offense with Biggs. I'm not opposed to having, you know, somebody at the fourth spot who you can filter touches through. I like having different ways to enter the offense and be able to go to different options. So I would certainly like to see it because this is gonna be the best team and at least in my opinion, the Jewish Randall's played on with the Knicks like I don't know. Like, after the, after, like, I know that Tyrese didn't play in that fourth quarter, but that was just like tremendous effort by the Knicks to be able to win that and game. No, the, oh, the yeah. a week ago.
3: They, they they grind and they play. I mean, last night, they have no players and they're, you know, Luca had to play 40 and, and be dominant to, to, to really with, pull away in that game. That's the constant. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it shouldn't be on, un- it, it, it is amazing how hard that team plays on a daily basis. Now, is that one of the reasons that three quarters of the roster is now banged up? I don't know. Maybe that's a big debate on Nick's Twitter all the time, but but, uh, but they do. They well, do. the Pacers are banged hard.
2: up a lot of the time, and they don't <laughs>
3: they don't play that hard. <laughs> right.
2: That's what Rick Carlisle said last night about their loss. Every quarter, to the Warriors and gave up 130, <laughs> and he was like, "Well, if we don't play hard and unselfish. We're not going to win."
0: There's that contrast again, right? We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: All right, I'll close with this. This will be our, our last question. And it's, again, a kind of a big picture one. And, uh, I know we didn't focus that much on tomorrow's game, but I don't even know who's going to be playing in that game. Mm-hmm. And the rosters are, have been so, uh, both rosters, have, there's been so much upheaval. It's like hard to even talk in the minute. Um, last big picture question is, okay, so you have this, this fascinating team that you're watching on a daily basis, analyzing it's this explosive offensive team, the defense. I think it's really cool that Carlisle just kind of experimented early in the season. And is like, let's just not help. And like, let's play every pick and roll two on two. And like, let's see what happens. And like, I don't know, to me, that's, Again, like it has such an anti-Tibs concept, like probably the most anti-Tibs concept that's ever existed is like not helping, <laughs> helping on pick and rolls and like loading up and like, it's like I foreign. can tell you it was maddening after. a Yeah, while. <laughs> right. And, and so, Carl, I need and I, I just it gets I don't know. I'm I think that's cool from a coach to like they're at a stage still where they can try to figure stuff out and they're not like at like the point where they need to I don't know. They're they're, they're in an information gathering stage in some way. I think right early in Tyrese's career here and his superstardom what's so you got Siakam in, you got some really interesting surrounding pieces the shooting obviously is outrageous let's assume they're i don't know between 5 and 8 seed this year i think realistically and you can tell me if you disagree like maybe they put up a first round fight if they find the right matchup maybe you could actually win a series but like they probably aren't going past the second round what what is the roster building what is the need going forward? Where do they need? I I think it's to me, it's like a point of attack defender. Like they need somebody who can actually like cover someone one-on-one, but like, what else are you looking for from roster building perspective? And then from a strategic perspective, like what needs to happen for this team with this superstar and now an all star next to him to like really make a leap to like contending status.
2: I mean, I know that everybody thinks that by simply putting buddy on a plane to philadelphia (laughs) the defense is suddenly gonna be healed that's a good point too yes yes, exactly but you know i think that they're still gonna have to figure out and i wrote this a couple weeks ago because boston was the first team that i had seen that had really targeted tyrese from the very beginning of a game like typically for whatever reason during the regular season it feels like Probably not as much of a concept to you because Brunson and Randall do this a lot from the top, from the start of games in terms of isolating who they call into actions. But like a lot of times against Tyrese, it doesn't typically happen until the fourth yeah.
3: Even the Knicks, though, like, like it's a lot of one five pick and roll until the second half when they're like, you know what, let's actually target Buddy let's, like, they, exactly. they it, it takes a lot of teams for whatever reason. It's like we, they go with their like kind of script in the first half, especially first quarter. And then like they slowly kind of devolve into matchup hunting later, I think.
2: And Boston was very targeted in that not only were they just screening Tyrese into actions for like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, but also involving him in certain off-ball actions that he wasn't really handling that well either. Targeting just like with chin cuts with Porzingis operating as the trigger man and various things like that as well. So in addition to what they were doing with weakening him, then they were draining his energy of what he was going to be able to do offensively with what they were having him do defensively. So I think... Finding ways that they're going to be able to protect him. And like right now, they are starting what theoretically is their best defensive lineup. Although I've still seen some concerning trends here or there that have me, you know, raising my antenna a little bit. Like, is, is that going to continue? What's that going to be? And, you know, they're a team that the last two seasons they've played a fair amount of zone. And I kind of understand why they took that out because putting Tyrese at the top of it could sometimes be like paper mache a little bit. Like, he tends to get overpowered by guys. But at the same time, there's times where I watch it, I'm like, okay, that doesn't necessarily need to be an attack mechanism, but could it be protective for him? Like, when you watch the Miami Heat and you see them put Duncan Robinson in the bottom of the 2-3 zone? yeah, yeah. Like, is that something you could consider? Or when you watch the Cleveland Cavaliers in the past and they go from having Evan Mobley at the top of a 3-2 and then on a post-touch, they'll have him slide back into a 2-3. Now that you have Siakam, do you have flexibility to maybe – toy around more with zone than what you would have had in the past. Cause you can put, you know, see Occam and Aaron East and Andrew Nembhard potentially at the top, those types of things. I think like just finding small, tiny edges defensively where maybe it's not just so much of Tyrese getting targeted. And I think that's why the playoffs are going to matter quite honestly, because the end season tournament was valuable to the Pacers for that, because seeing, you know, the Lakers trapping Tyrese to that degree and, Seeing what was going on defensively made it clear to them that they needed to go trade for Pascal Siakam. So maybe they get into the playoffs and they see, you know, more areas of like, okay, well, that cropped up and that's what we need to do. Because I will close with this and bring this up to you because I think that we do talk and I just did it a lot about like, oh, how are the Miami Heat going to protect Duncan Robinson or Tyler Hero when they're getting targeted? Or what are the Pacers going to do? But in the reverse of that, I don't necessarily think that we talk enough about the fact that the archetype of like who Andre Roberson was for the Oklahoma city thunder barely exists anymore. Like you're basically talking about like Matisse, to a lesser degree, Isaac Okoro, although Isaac has shot the ball better this year. And those guys are more so the ones who are being played off the floor in the playoffs than the ones who are being hunted. Yeah. And that's kind of where the buddy healed thing goes full circle again. Right? Cause like if the Pacers aren't gonna make a major leap defensively, do you have to be this team? that leans into offense and having shot making at every single position. So you can be the greatest offense of all time. And again, I get why they moved on because they were very far apart in contract negotiation extensions. But once the playoffs are over this year, I think they should have a clearer picture of, can you trust Tyrese? And he's just going to conjure magic. If you surround him with all defensive players, or is this a case where, Hey, we're just probably going to have to lean into being, you know, like what the Sacramento Kings were a year ago like all in on offense and hoping that that's what you can be. So I don't feel like I fully know the answer to that yet. And I'm excited to see the exaggerated coverages and what, how Tyrese handles it and how he handles being in a playoff series. I mean, I think that that too was big for Jalen Brunson before he even got to the Knicks. That series that he played against Utah huge, with Al, some of those games yeah. was so revealing as to what he was going to be able to be capable of and, and obviously proved it at an even higher level with the Knicks last year.
3: Yeah, I was thinking of you uh, during the recent Lakers Knicks game because they they saw the, the very same coverage. I mean, like like identical. Because again, the Knicks were very shorthanded. Brunson was the only offensive guy on the floor, and they are uniquely situated. The Lakers they have a tunnel. They, I mean, it's like. And then if you if you get there, it's like Anthony Davis is waiting, and there's nobody better in that scenario in the league, I don't think, than Anthony Davis. Like he erases your advantages by himself at the rim, mm-hmm. which means you have to now kick to your so-so shooters and. You're kicking to your so-so shooters. I mean, the Knicks have this question about like getting played off the floor with Josh Hart, frankly. And like what Miami did to him in forcing him to be in those situations where it's like, oh, I I am open on the wing again. What do I do? Right. And and that that thought process just kills your offense if you have somebody who can't make that decision quickly right away and like make a play out of it. And, And that's probably
2: why the bogey trades Pretty big, right? Huge. Like, you don't Huge. necessarily have to play Josh Hart in those situations, or you can at least dial back some of his minutes.
3: Yeah. I, you know, I've always said I think, I think the ideal for this team is Josh Hart's more of a 20 to 25 minute guy than a 25 to 35 minute guy, which he is right now. Like, I think you're good there. Like, he's just too limited on offense against really great defenses, I think, to like to make up for it in other ways. And he does a lot of great things. He's a really good pickup for them. He does, obviously, great rebounder, very solid defender. The the offensive issues are too exaggerated in those scenarios. Where, like, I think, yeah, I think having Bogey, even Burks, um, at least for this year, like, I think that's going to help a lot in terms of limiting that issue. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question. I'm sorry I'm keeping you long, but uh, we, we got into this a little bit. So, we're in this offensive explosion. There's very, it's very hard to stop anybody. What's the next defensive innovation to you that we see that actually unless there is none and it's just like rules based and like offensive sophistication based and and talent based like as the talent continues to evolve is there is there something that somebody's doing i know the celtics are super creative defensively maybe it's just like doing a lot of different things and like mixing things up to an extent where offenses don't know what's coming but like is there something that hasn't been executed a lot or done or looked at that you see as kind of the next defensive horizon in the league
2: I think it's a little bit of a mixture of both and that like when you have guys who can be quote unquote defensive playmakers, you can try and do more things. I mean, just like what we just said, like somebody replied to me because I shared that tweet about Boston playing that 2-1-2 zone and drew quarterback in the middle of it and then morphing from zone to man. And they're like, NBA teams don't switch mid-possession from zone to man. I'm like, yes, they do. The Pacers did it a year ago. Like they would go, they would play a basic 2-3 zone and on a high post flash, they would match up on those high post flashes because then it was forcing that big to have to like, unless you're Jokic or unless you're Sabonis or in certain cases like Julius Randall, you're going to live with that big shooting a mid range shot or potentially having to make a decision. The problem was, is that the Pacers a lot of times would be somewhat glitchy in the in between of matching up and finding where they were supposed to spray out to on the perimeter. So they didn't do it anymore. But that being said, is that like, I do think that there's probably more avenues to even go to with combining different types of defenses just like that. And then also like this is a very small thing and it's going to get very nerdy. but one of my biggest pet peeves at the NBA level and this isn't something that exists as much in the Euroleague is eliminating the term strong side and weak side and terming it more as taggers from the full side or the single side and then determining what you can do to eliminate single side tags. So like just to create an image for people, like if Tyrese is dribbling off a pick from Miles Turner, and Buddy Heald's guy goes and tags, and Buddy Heald's shaking up to the wing. That is very hard to, to defend if you're sending the tagger from the single side and Buddy's on the back side of that. Like, I don't understand why so many teams do this. About the only coach that I've seen, like, just absolutely avoid that for a game was uh, Frank Vogel with the Lakers. I think the year that they won the title, before it was in the bubble, they were playing the Dallas Mavericks, and they would intentionally send the tag from the full side, even if that meant that, like, They were leaving, like, even if they had to zone up there. So, like, I pointed this out last year, too, because the Pacers would run, like, this chin set with Jordan Mora where he was running middle pick and roll. And TJ McConnell would go off the chin cut and locate in the strong side corner. That was the full side. But every defense that ran this play would help off of the shape cutter. And then Jordan Mora would just make a pass, and then the Pacers would get a wide open three out of it. Like, why wouldn't you be like, let's send the tag from TJ McConnell?
3: Right, and then the 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 downside being you might leave a two v one on the on the strong side in this scenario, right? Where like you have one guy covered, you got to try to recover. But even so, the weak side pass, at least for some guys, like for a Halliburton, for example, and we talked about like the Knicks playing traditional covers, like that weak side is open so often, and it's like. And I feel like so
2: more in like today's NBA, like it's not. There's so many more guys who can make that one handed whip pass to the opposite corner. Like it's not as big.
3: It's funny. It might work, it might still work against advantage. the Knicks <laughs> because Brunson, it's not just not his strength. Uh, once he's kind of in that painted area, it's like he's operating in that he's not looking outside of it. Um, And even then there's other ways to avoid it. Like, even if you don't,
2: like if you're playing against that type of team and you're like, well, we don't feel comfortable doing the two versus one. Or like, what if one of them cuts and then our other guy can't get back out to the other shooter? Yeah. Like, then you can choose from a menu of coverages, perhaps. Right. Right. So, like, if you know that the it's it's based on the direction of the ball then. So, like, if it's going toward the single side, then you know we have people on the backside and then maybe you blitz it because you know that you have numbers on the other side of the floor. If it's the reverse of that, then maybe you next it because you know, oh, we only have one person on the backside. So mm-hmm. it's going to next year so that we don't even have to involve that tag. But then again, it goes back to what personnel do we have? And do we have people that can process this? Because you'd have to be making the call from the low man rather than the big, because the low man's going to know I'm on the full side right. of the court. And what if my guy runs the baseline? Then I'm gonna to need to be able to communicate to the big, hey, yeah. we can be in Blitz or we can be, you know, in this, but
3: And it certainly requires a very high level of communication because you're now there there's an instinct to helping from the from the weak side and like it's been ingrained in any ball player, basically, right? Like that's your help. But now you have to try to every possession re-navigate where everybody is on the floor, which takes which takes but not that it couldn't be done, but it does take it does take a very high level of communication. But that's fascinating. That's a great answer. Um I just think
2: it speaks to the level of like what, we, what i was saying like that archetype doesn't exist is that there's so much shot making at every single position yeah, it's, it's and not just standstill shot making it's like a wonderful three shot making step back shot making pull up three shot making like even what the knicks are going to be enjoying here pretty shortly yeah. when everybody's actually available and, and
3: depth and, and 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 just like the length of shot like i like like di freaking spacing to 29 and it's like you have to respect that it's like and there are a lot of guys like that it's not i mean it's it, it is it is crazy and I think you and I both like it's so fun to watch the Celtics because Missoula like is really creative in like what he's doing. He has the, look, he has the personnel to be creative and mm-hmm. he can cover a lot of ground. And guys are really smart defenders, and he can throw a lot of stuff at them, and they can kind of digest it and, and implement it. But
2: yeah, because there's other times where like you're watching a Nate Bjorken team, and it's like, do we really need to try triangle <laughs> and two with and shadowing Jokic? Is that a thing that actually needs to happen?
3: <laughs> yeah, it could get it's a little game.
2: bit on the galaxy brain side at that point.
3: That's amazing. All right, Caitlin. Thank you. I took a lot of your time. This was a lot of fun. I could talk to you a whole lot more. Uh, but thank you for, for taking the time and joining us. Uh, please, I, I think this is what Andrew does at the end of the show. Let the people know where they can find you. If you don't know where to find Caitlin, I'm disappointed in you as a Knicks fan because there's a lot to learn. So Caitlin, let them know, uh, where, where they can find your stuff.
2: Right. So my handle is at C2 underscore Cooper. If you go there in my bio, there's a link to my Patreon, patreon patreon.com slash basketball. She wrote where I do um, chats like this only in monologue form, sometimes after games. And I also do a lot of writing there as well. So people like these types of conversations. I'm happy to have you and there's also like a free tier and i do several free trials a month too so if you sign up you'll get those automatically sent to your inbox and hopefully i was listenable to knicks fans i do really enjoy your team i like jalen brunson and like that's why i like this matchup so much is exactly the reason you said because it is such a clash of styles and a clash of point guards in a really good and wonderful way
3: and then wally zerbiak can stir the pot a little bit if (laughs) if things are getting a little too boring anyway all right thank you caitlin this was awesome i hope we do it again soon this was a blast